Okay, guys. <clears throat> Sorry, I had to resort to the clap tonight to bring y'all all back together, but thank you um, taking your seats. And uh, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a couple of quick things to, to say before we do the scripture reading tonight. Um, I just want to add to what Brian was saying. Thanks for showing us those pictures and the, the little bit of a preview for our move coming up here. Um, this hit me as I was driving up tonight. I, this is actually my last worship service in this building because I'm going to be gone next week. So I am like, this is very surreal to think that this is the last. And if, you, if you're new to Vespers, we, we've been meeting here since the very end of 2012. So we're coming up on nine years in this spot. We've seen a lot of things. And even I was joking with some folks at our welcome seminar yesterday that the stuff that has driven us crazy, I'm going to kind of miss that too. Like when it rains and we have to put up buckets all along the side to catch the drips. Or like in the summertime when this one window like shines down the blinding beam of light for y'all in the back corner there. Like, you know, that's been frustrating, but it's kind of been like, ah. Oh, it's our frustrating, you know? Um, and we're going to especially miss the folks here at New Hope that have been such wonderful guests, or excuse me, hosts for us, and been very hospitable. Um, I do want to say this. I was laughing because I, I think you got a very good example of the difference between me and Pastor Brian tonight with his announcement. He's the good cop, and I'm the bad cop, because his explanation of the sanctuary with the wing sections and how it's big and spread out is, look at all the room we have to grow. And of course, my explanation, if you caught it a few weeks ago, is like, guys, we're going to be in a huge space. We can't spread out and everybody have their own pew, because that would really take away from what's so special about here at Vespers. And so... I'm going to say yes to what Brian said, praise God, space to grow, but also remind you that in those early days that we're meeting there, we're actually going to rope off some sections um, to fit kind of our attendance right now, and so that we're not all spread to the four winds, but we're actually taking advantage just of those center seats so that we're actually still near and still feels like a body and not, you know, like when you greet somebody, you have to like take out your binoculars and wave from a distance. Uh, we don't want that. So that's my, two, that's my bad cop piece. Brian's the optimist. I'm the pessimist. So, um, okay, uh, I think that's enough said for now. Let's, let's get into the scripture before I just keep talking and say something stupid. So if you would, stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Romans chapter 3, looking at verses 23 through 26. Now, if you were here last week, um, you know that a few of these verses we also read last week. I'm, I'm including them again today because it's going to give us some context, um, but there's a little bit of overlap. Just want to let you know I'm aware of that. So if you would follow along with me, it's up on the screen in the bulletin, or better yet, your own Bible that you brought with you. Verse 23 starts like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus and in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. Uh, go ahead and be seated. Um, and Hannah, I forgot to tell you, you the recording going? Awesome. Thank you so much. Hannah's first night on the job doing PowerPoint, doing great job. Thank you. Okay. Guys, I uh, have some incredibly good news to start off with tonight. The sermon title that you see up here, the sermon title that's printed in your bulletin, it actually fits what I'm going to talk about this evening. Can you believe it? No, no more applause. We've had too much applause. All right. But seriously, this is kind of like a minor miracle. The last like three or four times running, although one of them was not my fault, right, Brian? Um, the, I've had to sort of start the sermon by saying, disregard the sermon title. It doesn't really fit anymore because I, you know, decided it early in the week and then sort of changed my mind. But tonight, oh, it fits, baby. It's going to work well. Counting the cost is the name of the sermon. I started thinking about that early in the week, and it, it really was something that come Thursday, Friday, I didn't want to change my mind. So... The cool thing about this title, though, is it kind of has what I like when I choose a sermon title, and that's a little, it's a little bit tricky. It kind of throws you off the scent a little bit, because chances are, if, if you've been around church much at all in your life, you've heard this phrase before, counting the cost, and most likely you've heard it in connection with following Jesus, like the cost of following Christ, of discipleship. Uh, Jesus himself uses the phrase in, in Luke 14. He's talking about like what it takes to, to, to follow him, to pick up your cross and follow him daily. And he tells his disciples to count the cost. Make sure you know what you're getting into when you say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you lead. He might take you to some wild places. But all that to say, I'm going to sort of change that counting the cost uh, phrase a little bit tonight. And I'm going to apply it not so much to the cost of us following Christ, but the cost he paid to make us redeemed children of God. It turns out he paid a high cost for us to be clothed in the righteousness of God. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. That's the cost that I want to count, so to speak, in the sermon so last week, we, uh, we looked at the verses just immediately preceding this, and we really dug in on what I would say is the foundation of the gospel, the good news, and it's this phrase, the righteousness of God. And we talked all about how in the gospel, the righteousness of God is not a standard for us to live up to, but instead, the righteousness of God is a gift that is given. God the Father somehow, some way takes his righteousness, that is his perfect moral record, his faithfulness, his goodness, his justice, and he takes hold of it and he gives it to anybody who would cling to him in faith to claim as their own. The, the metaphor I used last week was that it's like we, we show up to a party 
just clothed in tattered, disgusting rags, and God sees us, but instead of saying, get out of here, he says, here, let me clothe you in my very own garment so that you no longer are just in tattered rags, but you're clothed in my righteousness and you belong here. That, in a manner of speaking, is the gospel. But what we didn't get to talk about as much last week, and and as the uh, text carries on, what we saw this week is that that gospel, that God clothing us with his righteousness, that action, it's not free. Now, I know some of you are like, what are you... Last week, you had an entire point, Josh, about how it is free. It's by the free grace of God that we receive his righteousness. True, it's free for us. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We don't deserve it. But it's not free for God. For him to be able to offer us his righteousness in faith, it comes at an extremely pricely cost. A cost that... It's probably hard for us to even imagine the depths of. And the cost I'm talking about is the life of the son Jesus who gave all so that all that we talked about last week, the righteousness of God given to you might be true in your life. Sometimes we sing, we raise our hands, we celebrate the grace of God, the goodness. He loves me more than I could ever imagine, but we can forget what it took for us to be able to say that confidently. And really, if I, if I have a burden in this sermon this week, if it's something that, like, what's the one thing that I want my brothers and sisters here to come away with, it's this, that if you find yourself treating your salvation cheaply, you don't think about it much, it doesn't matter much to you, it's not something that's really on your mind, any at all, it might be because you have failed to consider what it cost to give it to you. If we think that salvation is cheap, we'll treat it cheap. But if we know that it was pricely, maybe we'll treat it in a way that's deserved. So, let's dig in a bit in how we see this in the text. It's the last two verses that we read that really... uh, I really kind of bring this to the foreground. Verse 25, verse 26. And, you know, actually, it's two phrases in those verses that we're going to really pull out more than anything else. So verse 26 at the bottom. You can, Hannah, you can go back and probably just leave it up on the, yeah, you can just leave it up there because that really is what I'm going to refer to a lot tonight for people to see it. But verse 26 down here at the bottom, we've got this phrase that says, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So specifically, just and the justifier. We're going we're gonna to figure out what that means. Or we're going to try to, at least. And then go up one verse, verse 25. It says at the very beginning of the verse, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation by his blood is the other phrase that we're really going to hone in on and try to figure out what it means. And I mean, at one level, we need to figure out what it means because those are really sort of curious, mysterious sayings that at first reading, it's not very obvious to be like, oh, I know exactly what that means. So we'll unpack it a little bit. 
But we're also going to hone in on those because they, they happen to answer two really big questions about the gospel. The first, just in the justifier, that phrase that we talked about first, it answers the question, why? Why is there a cost that needs to be paid to redeem us? Why must God pay a cost to bring us close to him? That's what Justin Justifier gets at. And the second phrase that we're highlighting, the propitiation one, that answers the question, how? If there is this great cost to be paid, how is it that God does it? How does he pay? Is it with dollars? Is it with pesos? Is it with something else? I'm sorry, that was really cheesy. Uh, your blank stares, I deserve those blank stares. <laughs> How does he pay? Uh, Brian, I really should have a script that I go off of, man. Mm. Well, so the why and the how, those are really what we're going to be looking at with the, the phrases, just and justifier propitiation by his blood. So let's start with the why. Let's start with that verse 26. I'll read it for the whole, the whole thing for us one more time. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I don't know if you guys have experienced this or even you've thought it yourself, but sometimes when I'm speaking about the gospel with people, when I'm speaking about Jesus dying on the cross, rising again to newness of life, one of the questions I'll get is, why did he have to do that? Why? If God so loved the world, if God wants to forgive people, I mean, he's God. Why can't he just snap his fingers and make it so? God, I mean, we're in the, the, the habit of talking about God being able to do whatever he wants to do. So if he really wants to love people and forgive people, like, just do it. What's with all this other stuff that has to come along with it? Yeah, it's a legitimate question. And yet our text today is really giving us a straightforward answer to that, and it has to do with that word, just. So he can be just and the justifier, but the first one, just, is what's trying to answer that question. We, we talked about this a little bit last week um, when we defined God's righteousness. We said that part of what it means to be God is to be perfectly faithful, that is, he always keeps his promises, to be perfectly good, he always does what is right, but also to be perfectly just. God treats people fairly. He treats people equitably. And the flip side of that is that God never lets evil go unpunished. Sin Wickedness, evil, it has to be answered for. That's part of what it means to be God, is to be perfectly just and to be able to equitably, mm, forgive me, I, I almost said answer for, but have sin be answered for. So a, a righteous judge uh, somebody sitting there with his judge's robe and the gavel that has a case come before him with just pure evil. For him to ignore that or just sweep it under the rug would not be just. It would be incompetent. 
And incompetence is not an adjective that we ever apply to who God is. So because God is perfectly just, this is why we say things like God can't just snap his fingers and say, hey, it's, it's all water under the bridge. Yeah, you sinned, you did evil, whatever, it's fine, I forgive, let's move on. God can't do that. And as odd as it is to say that God can't do something, I, I hope you see where it's coming from. What we're saying is he can't do that because to be unjust would, in a sense, be to deny his very nature. If God is going to be God, that is, a God of perfect justice, he must pour out his wrath upon the things that deserve it, like sin, like evil, like wickedness. That's what it means to be truly God, a righteous God. And yet, we know from so much of the Bible that we've read already as we've gone through Romans that that's not the end of the story. God is just. He makes sure that evil is held accountable, and yet God also is loving. God also desires his people to be cleaned and redeemed and brought to him. So here's the rub that we see in this phrase. God wants to be both just and the justifier, the one who makes people redeemed at the same time. How can he possibly do that? How can those two things be held up and not be compromised or diluted or like a 50-50 both ways? How on earth is he going to pay the cost to make that happen? Well, that's where we get to our next phrase, with what the Bible talks about as propitiation. If the why of the gospel is that God is perfectly just and that sin must be held accountable, then the how is that he makes propitiation through his own blood. How many of y'all have used the word uh, propitiation in everyday conversation in this last week? Anybody? Anybody just casually just hanging out, throwing out propitiation? I didn't think so. Um, and the way I know that is because I tried to text that word this week and my autocorrect had a field day with it. It's an English word and yet it's like, what? <laughs> what language is this? It just goes to show how rare and unique this word really is. It's not one that we use too often, and therefore it's not one that we probably know off the top of our heads exactly what it means. But it turns out that it is the perfect word to describe the, the how of the gospel, how it is that God can be both just and the justifier at the same time. Propitiation describes that perfectly. And the reason why I say that it's a perfect word to do that is because if you actually trace its origins all the way back to like the beginning of the word came where it came from. Dan, we were talking about etymology of words earlier. You're going to love this, man. At least I hope so. If we actually trace the origin of the word back to its root, we see that it refers to a place, an incredibly significant place that gives us a bit of a clue about how God can pay this cost. So the word propitiation, well, uh, back up. Let me, let me start here. In the Old Testament, we have described for us uh, this day that the people of Israel will celebrate. 
It was a day that would only happen once a year. And on that day, the high priest of the people, he would, he would go into the most holy place of the temple, the inner sanctum. It's called the Holy of Holies, where God's very presence was said to dwell. He could only go in there once a year on this special day called the Day of Atonement. And when he entered in, he would take with him some of the blood from a sacrifice that had been made on the altar previous, like earlier in the day. And as he went into the Holy Holies, he would, he would dip his fingers in some of the blood and he would sprinkle it upon uh, this box that was in the Holy of Holies called the Ark of the Covenant. The blood he would sprinkle would be on the cover of the box that had a special name. It was called the Mercy Seat. And what was happening when the high priest did that, when he was taking the blood of the sacrifice and putting it on the mercy seat, he was symbolizing and showing that through that sacrifice, God's people had had their sins atoned for, that they had had them covered, and that the the wrath and justice of God that properly was due for their sins had been poured out on a sacrifice. And that because of that, they now got to live in freedom. Now, we'll say this a little bit later on, that, that sacrifice was, was kind of a placeholder until a greater sacrifice would come down the line. But for now, just hold that image in your mind of what would happen on the Day of Atonement when blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The reason I want you to hold that in your mind is because The significance of it, and the significance of it for our text, is that the word propitiation, it literally means mercy seat. It's a word that literally traces its origins back to the description of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. Now, the way that I'm able to say that is because of translational issues. And this, is, this could get very complicated, but I'm going to try my best to do it in a very efficient way. Our word propitiation here is a translation of a Greek word that Paul used in Romans 3. The Greek word is hilasterion. And that word itself is a translation of a Hebrew word. Back when the scribes uh, of the first century were creating the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, something called the Septuagint, they were needing to find Greek words that would translate these Hebrew words. And so hilasterion was used to translate the Hebrew word kaporet. And kaporet means, well, you guessed it, the mercy seat. So if we trace all these translation steps, what we realize is that our word propitiation we follow its family tree back, we get to the word that specifically meant the cover of the ark, the place where the priest sprinkled the blood of atonement, the mercy seat. So what is Paul trying to tell us here? He's trying to tell us that the way that God is able to pay the cost to make him both just and justifier, how he's able to do that is by Jesus Christ the Son becoming our mercy seat. In him, sin is atoned for. In him, wickedness and evil is paid for. In him, the wrath of God that justly deserves to be poured out on evil, he takes it. He becomes our mercy seat 
so that the Father can be both just and the justifier. Both the one who makes sin answer for what it's done and the one who forgives his people even though they don't deserve it. That's how it works. Now, the phrase that we have up here is that God puts forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. And I reiterate that right now because I want to make sure that you realize that the only way this works, the only way Jesus is able to be our mercy seat is because he laid down his life. He shed his blood. How it worked in the Old Testament Day of Atonement is that there was a a perfect unblemished sacrifice that was given at the altar and their blood was spread on the mercy seat. In the same way, Jesus, the Lamb of God, offers his blood on the cross, signaling that that day, Good Friday, is the great and final day of atonement, and in shedding his blood, he pays for sin once and for all. Did you notice how right after this it says, this was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Meaning that what Jesus did when he became the mercy seat, when he shed his blood, was to pay for all sin. The day of atonement when a lamb or a goat would be sacrificed, that couldn't atone for sin. That was just a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on the great and final day of atonement. And God had been waiting. He had been holding back. He had been suspending his wrath, waiting for the day when Jesus, the Son, as the ultimate sacrifice, would become our mercy seat. That's what it cost. And to come back to the the title of this sermon, and now I started with, what we're doing today is we are counting the cost of what it took to bring us to a place of being redeemed children of God. This is it. Here's what it took. Jesus becomes like a lamb led to the slaughter. He endures the agony of the cross. He even endures, how do I put it? On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you want to know why in the Apostles' Creed we say that Jesus descended into hell, it's because of that. That's what hell is, the absence of God. Jesus endured it. And all of it was the cost he paid so that we might be people clothed in the righteousness of God. For us to receive that, for us to celebrate that as Christians, we have to understand that it was not cheap. It was not free. It was not simple. It came at great cost. And all you have in the gospel Please, please, please recognize it didn't come cheap. I am um, almost out of time here, so I'm going to close up. But I'm going to share with you a, a story that I remembered this week. I actually, I preached on this once, but it was like ages ago. It was probably like the first year we met in this building, nine years ago. So nobody remembers. But it was a story about when I was in St. Louis as a seminary student, and I was meeting for coffee with this fellow who was an undergraduate at a college down the street. And I think that I, 
Well, I shocked him in conversation. Um, because he was, he was telling me some things about the Bible very confidently. He was a confident young man. And he was saying, you see, in the Old Testament, God was all about fury and wrath and justice. But in the New Testament, he changes, and he's all about love and forgiveness. And this is where I shocked him. I said, you know, actually, I think that we see more of God's wrath in the New Testament than we do in the Old. And he about spit out his coffee. Um, not because he was really intrigued by what I had just said, but more because he thought I was an idiot. And he was like, you're in seminary and you don't know this? Have you not read the Bible and seen what I'm talking about? And I was like, yeah, I, I have read the Bible. In particular, I've read the portions in the New Testament where we see the Son of God, Jesus, hung up on a Roman cross and in that moment, endure the full weight of God's wrath for sin. He drinks the cup of God's judgment down to the dregs and endures a punishment for sin that's probably hard for us to truly wrap our heads around. That's what I see. God's wrath doesn't just disappear magically in the New Testament. No, instead, it's concentrated in one place and on one person, the Son, Jesus. And because he paid that price, because he endured that cost, that's why we're able to celebrate the love and forgiveness that we see in the gospel of the New Testament. It didn't come from nowhere. It was paid for. And I'm ending like that tonight because I want it to be what sort of sets the tone for this meal that we take. And I want you to realize that when Jesus gave this meal to his disciples, he was telling them. He was telling them that what you will receive in the gospel comes at a high cost. It comes at the cost of my body. It comes at the cost of my blood so that I can be your mercy seat, your propitiation. And yeah, I see some folks that are going to grab extra materials in the back. This would be the great time for you to get one if you don't have one already. And I'll wait for some folks to come back.